0: But keeping the boys out of trouble isn't always easy, because when David and Elliot are together, they have more fun than should be legal. Welcome to another edition of Sports and Torts on TalkZone.com with David Spada and Elliot Harris. David and I are thrilled to have a Baseball Hall of Famer on this week's episode, a man who won more game in the 1970s. 186 of them than anybody else. A man who spent 19 seasons his entire career with one team, Hall of
1: Famer Jim Palmer.
2: We're at least getting some baseball weather here in Chicago. Might get in the mid-40s today rather than in the teens.
1: Well, you know, one one year after I had hurt my arm, uh, 1975, I uh, was warming up and my wake-up call was uh, like 18 degrees in Detroit. And then they I was warming up down the right field line, and actually they they sang two stanzas of the uh, of the national anthem, and I had to put my jacket on. And then I started warming up again as the we started the uh, the top of the first inning, and Lee may hit a three run home run, and it got a lot warmer <laughs> and I ended up winning like something like eleven to nothing so you know you know it 's interesting when you get into cold weather. I think the people that are probably the least uh, cold are the pitchers because you 're moving around hitters of course even though they wear gloves um, a little bit more difficult that kind of weather but i 'm sure the way the the winter has been in the Midwest and especially in the northeast. Um, people are looking forward to spring spring training concluding, and then you can start your baseball program.
0: To those of us who aren't able to make it to spring training, and are baseball fans, it, it doesn't matter if there's snow on the ground. Somehow, it's it's like a revival, a renewal. Is it that way for ballplayers?
1: Well, it is. Um, you know, I mean, I, I played for the Orioles my entire career, so. Uh, you know I was born in New York I was adopted I moved out to California after my my adopted father passed away when I was about ten and then so I lived in California and then went to high school in Arizona, so I always lived in pretty warm climates compared to uh, what I would eventually be in Baltimore. But I raised my children in Baltimore and uh, you know I had two daughters and you know if you got away once or twice, you could you know you all always started looking forward to that February fifteenth when um, you know we had a delayed uh, trainer Ralph Salvon was up from Springfield mass and Ralph he was about five six about two hundred and eighty pounds and uh, he and I used to always drive the spring training it was kind of one of the rites of passage uh, you know again playing your whole career, and Ralph was there for a lot of those years, so we 'd always drive down and you know sometimes we 'd drive all the way, and you know his wife would with packed food and of course when you're five six and you weigh about two eighty five, you you know you have a pretty good aptitude appetite. By the time we got to um uh North Carolina the the, the, the backseat full of food would already be empty so we'd have to stop but I'd make them actually well, we'd play catch at rest stops and I'd always let him stand uphill so the ball wouldn't go that far but um yeah, you know so I think everybody whether you're a baseball player or you're a baseball fan and of course you know I think uh, two of the teams that have probably you know you got a new manager with the Cubs and then you could have the White Sox uh, probably more than any team in the American League Um, made the most dramatic changes so you know I I think arguably you could say that they're the favorites uh, at least for this year uh, in the American League Central so it'll be a very interesting year for baseball fans in Chicago.
2: They talk a lot about young pitchers needing time to adjust I mean you come up as a 20 year old and join the uh, Orioles starting rotation at 66 what was that like?
1: Well, I came up when I was 19, actually, you know, and I, I didn't start till I was 20. But, you know, I started some games in 65, but I roomed with Robin Roberts. Robin had about 274 wins, and I didn't have any. And I think one of the important parts of any organization is you have people that are willing to mentor you. And Robin, uh, you know, I mean, what, I think he went to Michigan State, and he was a terrific athlete. He was one of the whiz kids back in the 50s. You know, end up being a Hall of Fame pitcher, but he was a terrific athlete, as was I. And so, you know, we kind of, I mean, he was twice my age. I was 19, he was 38, but I used to put him to sleep asking him questions. And then I sat in the bullpen, and if you go back and um, you know, if you're a White Sox fan, uh, if, if you remember Sherm Lawler, he was a terrific catcher for a lot of great White Sox teams in the late, you know, in the 50s. And I think he played on that the World Series team, 59, when the, uh, the White Sox went out and played the Dodgers uh, at the Coliseum, where I think they had 90,000 people for one of the games. But he was the bullpen cook. Uh, coach, I had Harvey Haddock's one of the great left-handers. You know, had pitched that what eleven or twelve inning perfect game until Adcock hit a three-run home run. We had Stu Miller, one of the great uh, change-up pitchers of all time. You know, I mean, I'd load the bases up and put him out there as good as other relievers I've seen, whether it's Rivera or Goose Gosage. Guys just couldn't time uh, Stu Miller's change-up. So, you know, learned a lot from him. Also out there was Charlie Lau, who would go on to be one of the great hitting instructors. You know, for about 15 years in the major leagues, we had a guy, John Orsino. We had gotten from the from the Giants. He uh, he made a decision: Am I going to be the drummer for Frankie Valley in the Four Seasons, or am I going to play baseball? Big mistake. <laughs> and he was really a great guy, and he was that wasn't a bad catcher. He had, had an arm thing. So I mean, I was sitting out there. We had Eddie Fisher, the knuckleballer, in, in 1966. Dick Hall, I think, walked nine in his whole career. You know, was a guy that came up with the Pirates as a third baseman, six six right hander who. After uh, I had played A-ball for Cal Ripken Sr., uh, when I got to Baltimore, nobody ran. I mean, they ran on your own. But Dick was, again, a very good athlete, so I kind of, you know, hung with him when I was 19, and, you know, he was probably 15 years older than I was, but, you know, he was very well conditioned, even though he was a reliever. But back then, you know, relievers used to pitch three, four innings, uh, even if you were like, uh, you know, the guy who would now pitch the seventh or eighth inning. So, uh, you know, I learned a lot, and uh, my nickname was Brash, because I used to ask so many questions. And um, I, I just felt the only way that I could really learn, I mean, certainly I, I kind of watched, but between asking Robin Roberts, who had finally at about 1.30 would say, kid, I'm you know, I'm 38 years old, i got to get some sleep, that's enough questions. Uh, I think my first, probably my first year in the major leagues was the most formidable because I'd come right out of A-ball, and, you know, these guys really made the transition a lot easier.
0: You were also a pretty good basketball player. UCLA offered you a scholarship, and and you decided to take fifty thousand dollars and play baseball
1: instead. Well, that was one of the harder decisions I made. I, I got out, you know, when I got out of high school. I mean, you know, Arizona did not have great basketball, but we did have some schools that were pretty good, and I did lead the state in scoring. And you know, I had scholarships to Ohio State, uh, UCLA, Arizona State at the time. This was nineteen sixty-three. Actually, had a better basketball program. Um, than UCLA. They had played in the regionals and doubled them up at halftime, 42-21. So Ned Wolk was the coach there. And um, But when I got out of high school, I mean, I think the the best offer I got was like $20,000. And I really did want to, I mean, I was also a very good wide receiver. So I just, I think when you're 17 years old, you know, you're, Money's not that money's not important, but my parents were somewhat. I mean, we, you know, my dad worked hard and, you know, we were somewhat affluent. I mean, we, you know, I didn't, you know, I used to mow uh, the yard and clean the pool, help my mom clean on Saturdays, and if I needed $5 for the weekend, I got $5. So I always thought that was a pretty good trade off. So money was never really an issue. And uh, I always wanted to play uh, college basketball because I, as a baseball player, I was a good hitter. I threw very hard. But you had to work a little bit harder. And I had a coach, um, you know, I had uh, Ken Clinkingbeard was our coach. And, you know, not only was he a very uh, good offensive coach, but he also taught us the values of playing defense for basketball. So it was a a sport maybe I had to work a little bit harder because when, you know, you have this God-given talent to throw a ball in the upper 90s, Uh, maybe baseball comes a little bit easier, so when I signed that contract, I ended up going to a college league, because Bobby Winkles had been the coach at ASU, he would eventually go on to manage the Angels, he said you're going to waste your time playing American League balls, so I went up with five um, uh, college guys, you know, four of them were all Americans from Arizona State made the ball club in winter, South Dakota spent the summer up there, it was sponsored by the Orioles, it was a college league, you know, you're supposed to have a day job and then work, play baseball at night, and I did pretty well up there, you know, hit some home runs, pitched well, um, and when I came back there, were uh, we drove all night, because if you spend a couple of months in winter South Dakota, you want to get back as quickly as you can, and I ended up signing, uh, even uh, Houston was, you know, Paul Richards came to see me, and then the Orioles came in, and my mom thought that that was the best uh, direction to go in, and You know, I made that decision, and as it turned out, you know, I got to play in six World Series, and I got to play in a bunch of All-Star games, and I played with some of the greatest players that ever played.
0: As a native New Yorker and a Yankees fan, was there a part of you that said, "I want to play for the Yankees"?
1: Well, I, you know, it's funny. My parents uh, went up to Las Vegas, and um, Tom, I think Tom Greenway was a scout for the Yankees. He tapped my mom on the shoulder. He said, "We're going to sign your son." But the, I mentioned that we, when, when we left winter South Dakota, um, we did drive pretty much straight through all the way back to Arizona. On the way, uh, Louis Lagunas, all-American all, all American second baseman, fell asleep driving my car, and I went to grab the wheel, and we actually went off the highway, uh, rolled it three times. The car was pretty much dem- demolished. We jumped in the car behind us, uh, who were, you know, some Skip Hancock was right behind us, a pitcher from ASU, and I signed that afternoon. And, uh, you know, the next day, 10 teams called. You know, I, think, I don't think anybody thought we were going to get home as quickly as we did. But, again, uh, you, you know, I, when I got in the Hall of Fame, um, I, I said, for anybody that thinks I'm perfect, because I think a lot of times when you look at Hall of Famers, you think that, you know, that maybe there's uh, not a lot of uh, imperfection there. But I said, you know, I rooted for the Yankees the first 18 years of my life, so it proves I'm not perfect. So for any of you that actually are Yankee fans out there, they're never too old to get over it. And I got a little bit of a chuckle from that because even when I was in A-ball playing, uh, for Cal Rifkin Sr. up in Aberdeen, South Dakota, um, I, you know, it, it was 1964, the, the White Sox, the Yankees, and the, and the Orioles actually went right down to the last couple of weeks. And, you know, I didn't know Brooks Robinson. I didn't know Boot Powell. I didn't know Robin Roberts, I didn't know Bill Tappas, I didn't know Steve Barber, but I certainly know who Cleve Boyer was, and I knew who Mantle was, and I knew who Maris was, and I knew who Whitey Ford was, because for some reason, when I grew up in New York, I, I probably would have, I mean, I had a choice of either being a Dodger fan, or being a Giant fan, or being a Yankee fan, I mean, it's the only time you ever had three major league teams in one big metropolitan area, and for some reason, uh, you know, now it's the daily, what the daily news, but back then I think it was the Daily Mirror, and you know, it was a tabloid paper, and I'd run down the end of the driveway because I loved the Yankees. And um, if you guys remember in City Slicker, Billy Crystal's out in the middle of New Mexico, and he yeah. talked to his best friend, and they said, you know, what was your, you know, what was your greatest day ever? And Billy says, well, 1955, my dad took me to Yankee Stadium before color television, and I never realized how green the, the field was until I walked through the tunnel and saw the field. Well, that happened to me a year earlier when I, in 1954. And uh, my dad took me Tuesday night. It had rained a little bit, so the grass was even glistening more. And 10 years later, I'd come in with the bases loaded when I was 19, and uh, I'd struck out Mantle Maris and Elston Howard, who had been the MVP the year before on, like, 12 pitches. So, you know, you you dream about being a major league pitcher, and then 10 years later, it actually comes to fruition. And, and, you know, a lot of people think that maybe the – Um, You know, the highlight of my career was a shutout against Andy Koufax in the 66 World Series. But I think um, that coming in at 19 and uh, pitching in Yankee Stadium where I had gone to see the Yankees play when I was a kid was a pretty special moment. Yeah, I
0: I can remember baseball back then, and the first game I went to was probably two or three years later. But what struck me was the brightness of the lights you you walk up the steps in, in, into the the stadium itself, and it's brighter than daylight. Well, unless you went to Cleveland, <laughs> <laughs> went
1: to Cleveland. Well, that's because uh,
0: Bill Vec wasn't paying his electric bill.
1: Well, yeah. well you know it's funny how I mean, there were you know mounds, uh, you know the 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 size of ballparks. I think you know if you're a pitcher, obviously you know you go to Fenway Park and. You always kind of feel like the wall is kind of brushing the back of your uniform because that you know the, the green monster in left field and of course yankee the yankee stadium you know it, when i played for the you know for the orioles starting in, in 65 my rookie year yankee stadium was like 463 to center field the left center was 457 you had shoots right and left field uh, where the the, uh, the bullpens were and You know, you'd sit right at at the 402 side. That was where the chute went back. And, of course, Yankee Stadium is much smaller now. But it was only 296 down the line. It had about a maybe a four-foot fence. And then there was, uh, I think, 301 down the left field line. So you had tons of room. The monuments that are now the other side of the fence uh, out past the bullpens were actually in the field of play. I saw Joe Joe Pepitone um, hit a ball in my rookie year in 1965. He hit it about 461 feet, and it was only a triple. I saw Andy etcher hit a a ball up the gap in left center and get it inside the park home run, and Etch was not that fast. But it was a – you know, and there were so many great things that happened there because of – you know, I mean, obviously, you had the perfect game. Don Larson actually was on my team, but in 1956 when he was playing for the Yankees, he pitched that perfect game in 1956, so – you know, I, I, for some reason, I love the Yankees, and of course, that, that changed pretty abruptly when um, uh, I, I got to the Orioles when I was 19. And I guess the irony is that my first win in the major leagues uh, in relief, I hit a home run off Jim Bouton, and um, my first win in the major leagues was against the Yankees.
2: That World Series in 66, I mean, again, like you talked about, you won against Andy Colfax, you had the complete game. Did you think to yourself, you know what, this is easy? No,
1: I don't think you ever think it's easy, but I will say this. We went out there, um, you know, the American League was referred to as the, the Junior League. And, you know, it said Junior League leaders, the Orioles, in town to play the Dodgers. Dodgers had won in 65, they had won in 63, um, you know, they won in 59. They had a pretty good ball club. They had Koufax and Drysdale. Uh, Sandy couldn't pitch or didn't pitch the first game because of the Jewish holidays. Um, so his term came up against me in Game 2. Uh, game 1 started, Franklin Bert Robinson hit home runs in the first inning. Dave McGalley, who was a terrific left-handed pitcher, he would go on to win 20 games for the Orioles four times. He started, and he really wasn't on his game. Um, Mo Chabowski came in, struck out 11 Dodgers in six and two-thirds innings. We had got him on waivers from Kansas City. Um, you know, he pitched for the Cubs at one point and, you know, had a tr- tremendous arm. And uh, we paid $25,000 for Mo. And he, you know, I'm 20 years old. I'm going to pitch against the arguably one of the best pitchers in the history of the game, Sandy Koufax, even though his career was, you know, really six, seven years. But he was like a, I mean, a shooting star. I mean, you know, 25, 27 wins, uh, you know, ERAs under two runs a game. And I just didn't want to embarrass myself. And as it turned out, Willie Davis dropped a couple of balls, picked up the second one, heated in the stand. We got some early runs. Um, as it turned out, I ended up pitching my first shutout, 1-6 to nothing, and it was kind of a blur. I mean, you just go out there, and I think if whether you're 20 or you were 25 or you were 30, um, you, you know, when you're pitching against Koufax, you know you better pitch well, and it, as it turned out, I did. Um, I think the one thing about getting to the major leagues when you're early, it's no different than playing with the big boys. When you're a kid, if you're a really good athlete, whether it's basketball or football or even baseball, you usually play with kids a little bit older and you try to figure out on the fly what you need to do. And I just went out there. I pitched well. Uh, then, uh, Wally Bunker, who had been rookie pitcher of the year a couple of years earlier before he had some shoulder problems, uh, he won one to nothing back in uh, Baltimore. And then McDowell came back and beat Drysdale, Frank Robinson, uh, Hit a home run in, in game four, and we won one to nothing. So, the Dodgers never scored. I think after inning number three in the first game of the World Series, and I mean, I agree with you guys. I walked out. I had turned 21 in the in the midst of that uh, of that World Series, and I did kind of comment to myself, not that it was easy, but you know, you kind of walk out and you're going, it's really hard to believe that in really a matter of six or seven days, you've become world champions. And it never was that simple ever again. I mean, I won two other world championships, but, um, you know, and then also lost another three, uh, you know, in in seven games or five games to the Mets in 69. But uh, I don't think you ever think it's easy. I just think sometimes you kind of, um, you know, wonder if that really happened. And uh, it was really an amazing series for the Orioles, first time they'd ever been in the World Series.
0: Now, a couple of guys who were happy about you beating the Dodgers in four games, as I understand it, were Frank Sinatra and Dean Martin, who would each bet a $1,000 at 40 to 1? Well, that's what I heard. You know,
1: Frankie, Frankie Bertana was a bonus kid out of San Francisco. You know, he's left-handed, and we used to, his nickname was Toys in the Attic because, you know, he had a lot of stuff <laughs> going on in there. Um, but he knew Jilly, who was friends with Frank in the next spring, 1967. We're all down in spring trading and he, you know, he had told us that you know, Frank was going to appear at the Fountain Blue, and we, did we want to come? Jilly was going to arrange it. Uh, I think Wally Bunker went. Uh, Dave McNally. Uh, we brought our wives, and you know, we sat. We I could. I actually met Frank after the show. I could have grabbed his ankle. We were sitting so close, and I think the reason was because he did. He did did bet the Orioles, and um, you know, we did win four in a row. Who would ever think that with Drysdale and Koufax pitching, even Claude Osteen. Um, and uh, Frank was very happy about that. And I, you know what, it's, it's funny, I, I mean, I was a Sinatra fan, and Nelson Riddle was the band order, and it was one of the more amazing nights of, uh, you know, I'm, what, 20, 21 years old, and you're getting to see Frank Sinatra, and then I met him, and he was dating Mia Farrow at the time, uh, and the one thing I noticed, Frank's hands were a little bit sweaty. He's probably nervous <laughs> meeting me, but uh, other than that, it was a wonderful night. <laughs>
2: Well, how was the change with the Orioles when you went from Bowers' manager to Earl Weaver?
1: Well, I had hurt my shoulder, so I almost missed a year and a half. And Earl took over uh, at the All-Star break in 1968. And uh, you know, Hank was—you know, Hank had played all those great Yankee teams. I mean, he pretty much—you um, know—we had good coaching staff. Harry Bikin was a pitching coach, and Gene Woodling, uh, who had—you know—he was actually platooned with Hank uh, when the Yankees won all those world championships for Casey Stangle and Ralph Hauk, and, um, you know, he'd let you play. I mean, you know, he um, he was very simple, and, and, and Earl, you know, Earl had come through the minor leagues, along with Cal Rifkin and, you know, a lot of other guys, and, you know, we had a great minor league system, and Earl, you know, Earl knew the Oriole way, which is, you know, you're going to be fundamentally sound, and, you know, you root for each other, and we always had good players at, not only the minor leagues, but eventually at the major league level, and, you know, I mean, Earl made some pretty dramatic things. I mean, he he took Don Buford, who was an infielder, put him in left field, and he would go on uh, in 69, 70, and 71 to be arguably the best leadoff hitter uh, offensively in, in baseball. I mean, a you know, switch hitter, you know, anywhere from 18 to 20 home runs. He could steal some bases. Um, you know, we had Paul Blair with eight goal gloves in center. We had Frank Robinson uh, on his way to the Hall of Fame in Wright, you know, Brooks Robinson played third, 16 straight gold gloves. Mark Belanger, who I had broken in at Aberdeen with Cal Sr., uh, he, you know, he would come up as, uh, as a shortstop. He would win eight gold gloves. Davey Johnson, who went on to be a terrific manager, he, he won four gold gloves. And after he left the Orioles, we'd go down and hit, what, 43 home runs for Atlanta. Book Bowl, MVP in 70. We had Etchebarron and Henriks behind the plate. Um, 70, we had 320 20-game winners. 71, we had four 20-game winners. You know, Cal would, you know, Eddie Murray would come up, I think, 77. Uh, Cal Ripken in 81. Um, Earl was a very good manager, but he also played at the right time because, again, we just had a great organization. We had great continuity. And, uh, you know, Earl knew his stuff. I mean, he, you know, he wanted me to be perfect, and we kind of had one of those love-hate relationships uh, where I would listen to what he would, second-guess everybody, and then I know what he was saying when I was out of the mound, but, you know, if you think about having um, a relationship with a manager for, what, 12, 13 years, from really 69 all the way through 80, 82, um, if he puts the ball in your locker every fourth day, you got to like that type of manager. So, we won a lot of games. You know, he could be difficult. Um, uh, you know, we got along. We used to play golf in the offseason. Uh, you know, so... It's not like we didn't talk to each other. It's just that, uh, you know, sometimes he could be a little bit annoying, and I'm sure, he, you know, if he was still alive, he'd probably tell you the same thing about me.
2: There was no temptation to go kind of pull some of his uh, plants out of his garden when you got upset at him?
1: No, 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 no. <laughs> I, you know, actually, he uh, used to have a tomato growing contest with Pat Sander on our groundskeeper down the left field line. And But, you know, the one thing about Earl was he was very loyal. And, um, you know, when Buford struggled in 72, um, Earl would be driving to the ballpark and he'd made out a lineup and didn't, didn't have Don Buford or maybe it didn't have Merv Redmond. We had traded Frank Robinson. Frank had gone, um, you know, out to, to the Dodgers for Doyle Alexander and a couple of other names that not too many people know. Bobby Bonner, Royal Stillman, Sergio uh, Robles, uh, you know, a catcher. But um, by the time Earl got to the ballpark, he would remember all the great things that um that Don Buford had done for him, you know, since the middle of 68, and, you know, his name would be in the lineup. Now, that didn't mean that Don was going to do well because he really struggled that year, but I think as a player you appreciate the fact that he really um, uh, was loyal. He remembered who had won games. And, you know, Earl was the type of guy, you could call him any name, you could yell, scream at him, you could pout, you could do whatever, but if he thought you were going to help the team win that night, you were probably going to be in the lineup.
0: I'm having a tough time envisioning him as a golfer. Who, who, who does he yell at on the golf course? His clubs?
1: Uh, well, I mean anybody. Uh, you know, <laughs> Pat Danner our groundskeeper. We'd all play. We, you know, winter in Baltimore. I mean, it could get pretty, uh, pretty cold. But you know, we'd play. I mean, if, if we, you know, we'd. I mean, I'm sure it's the same way in Chicago. We'd we'd layer up, and as long as you, you know the greens weren't frozen and. Um, uh, you know, we we'd meet over at either Pine Ridge, which was a great public golf course, or Turk Valley, and we'd have eight guys and we'd play foursomes. And but if you moved, if things weren't going well for Earl, you know, he'd yell at umpires in baseball and he would yell at the fellow golfers. He, you know, he creased he he uh, he uh, kind of go Pat Sand around who was gonna you know he was waiting for him to hit because he you know Earl had a very unorthodox swing. I mean, he had a you know he would aim way left and hit this big fade. You know, one time he actually hit it straight. He hit it over the houses, into the street. And I said, well, I said, nice shot. And he goes, what do you mean, nice shot? I said, well, you finally hit one straight uh, because he was aiming about 50 yards left. But um, the thing about Earl was he was very competitive. And, he, you know, until he moved to Florida and he actually started living in a country club, he never, he wouldn't take shots. So he was a, you know, he was good for 25 dollars a day, you know, enough to, back then to take your 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 wife to dinner. So I I enjoyed playing golf. With
2: How did the jockey uh, commercial start or ads? Uh, I used to do speaking
1: for Sports Illustrated, and uh, Keith Morris called and he said instead of a speech, uh, jockeys going to do the second year of using I think nine athletes would you be one of them? And I said, I said, how much does it pay? He said, more than a speech. I said, well, to get my clothes off, you're going to have to pay me more. It wasn't a whole lot. So I, I took the train up to Baltimore, uh, Baltimore to New York on the, on the Metro liner. And, you know, I think it was $35 round trip. I showed up on time. um, You know, apparently jockey Bill Herman, who just passed away, was the director of advertising. Terrific guy. uh, He asked, uh, you know, he, I got there on time. I looked good in the underwear. He asked me to come and speak at um, in one of their sales meetings. I did it the next year. I was the only guy from that group. I was again being one of nine. I was asked back. Then they kind of took a, a, a moratorium year, where they did some generic advertising, and then Bill talked them into in me being the uh, you know the spokesperson for Jockey. And uh, to be honest, um, I didn't really think about the you know the you know. I mean, I always stayed in shape anyway. And, you know, the uh, Harold Krieger did the uh, photography. I saw the first ads they did in 1980, and I was amazed because the lighting was terrific. I said, is that really me? And they really, you know, back then, I don't, you know, I don't think he'd retouched them. So, you know, I was kind of flattered. It was a great way to send my kids to college without having to leave the Orioles. Um, I, you know, I think nowadays, a lot of times, you, players will will go from one team to the other and forget that maybe the grass was greener where they left because of money, but, you know, the jockey, uh, you know, and I ended up working him for 19 years. And, again, you know, I worked with Bill Herman, and, uh, you know, he used to always say, I used to say, well, you know, I work for you, and he said, no, no, we work together. So he was a great guy. We, You know, not only did I do the ads, but I also did a lot of store appearances. So I got to meet baseball fans, and I think the one thing, if you look, Bill was very smart. He, he understood that uh, most men's underwear is bought by women. So you get somebody right. that's non-threatening to men, you know, a baseball player, not a model, and then you get somebody that you know apparently when they did the test ads, I you know I, I think Steve Garvey and I were the two guys. you know, I'm kind of a taller version of Steve. Right. Um, they, the women thought that I looked in the underwear and that's how it pretty much that was the genesis of how it started. did you did you have to work to stay in shape? Well, no, I think you well of course. I mean, I, when I got um, got to the major leagues. In fact, when I went to Puerto Rico after when I hurt my arm in sixty the winter of '68, I probably weighed about 212, and I didn't really like the food. A lot of the food in Puerto Rico back then was frozen. I probably got into you know dropped from 212 to 194, and pretty much stayed. That weight the rest of my uh, life. I always felt in you know because I played with uh, played for Cal Ripken uh, senior when I was in a ball in Aberdeen, South Dakota. Opening day by thirty nine degrees and we had a meeting and uh, you know we're making four hundred and fourteen dollars and fourteen cents after taxes. Basement uh, getting three dollars a day meal money, ten to twelve hour rides in the uh, in the bus uh, on, on a bus going through North Dakota and South Dakota and up into Canada and Winnipeg. I would, um you know, he said, never let anybody outwork you. So, you know, I learned at a very early age, uh, you know, Oriole baseball was about great work ethic and having fun and having a, a passion to get a little bit better. So I always thought the conditioning part of it was was fairly easy as, uh, as long as you were willing to put in the work. And, um, you know, again, I mean, you have, you know, I, we all have choices in life and, uh, you know, some people get up every morning. I mean, like this morning, I, because I knew I was doing this show and I have a charity golf thing. I ended up going to the gym about six forty-five. But I try to go every day, and it's it's. I just try to put it as part of my life. And so, you know, even in, you know, as I'm approaching seventy, I still like to think that I'm in pretty good shape.
2: What was it like when you went into the Hall of Fame?
1: Well, you know, you don't. I mean, obviously, you know, it's an honor. I mean, back back then, there's probably you know now I think there's probably about two hundred and fifty players. Um, yeah, I don't think you really know or, or understand the magnitude. Um, as it turned out, Joe Morgan and I got in in 1990. Uh, we were the two players that went in that year, and uh, we were rained out on that Sunday. So we actually had they, – they always had the uh, dinner at the Otisaga Hotel, and on that particular night, I mean, you had Joe DiMaggio there, you had Stan Musial there, you had Ted Williams, you had – Mickey Mail, you had Bob Feller, you had Early Wynn, you—I mean, Sandy Koufax. You had—I mean—the greatest play—I mean, greatest players ever. I mean, the the players that I, um, you know, idolized or tried to emulate. Uh, So, at the dinner that night, now we weren't really inducted into the Hall of Fame yet, Joe and myself. um, uh, They actually passed the microphone around, and Stan Musial had had some health issues and. You know, Ted Williams grabbed the microphone and talked about how great it was. That Stan was finally back and he was feeling better, and et cetera, et cetera. And you know, everybody kind of talked. And then I think that's probably the first time that I realized what a special group. I mean, it's a kind of like a fraternity where um, you you know you realize that um, you know yeah I guess it's kind of validating that you had a pretty good career. But the other time you realize that you're in the same group with with the immortals. And, um, I remember, uh, Johnny Miser's wife used to always say, well, people would ask her, uh, you know, <laughs> what's it like to be married to a living legend? And she gets, she said, I've become nauseous. I've heard that so much, but I think a lot of people really feel that way. But, you know, Cooperstown, every, every year I go back, um, you know, since 1990 when I was inducted, I think you realize how, how it's, it's a great place to get in touch with how people really love baseball. And, um, uh, you know, to to be part of, you know, again, this fraternity or this club or whatever you want to call it, um, it's really special. And, uh, you know, that's why when I talked about, you know, all the players when I was giving my induction speech, um, again, I tried to emulate them or I tried to to reach or meet the standards that they set. And um, it wasn't always about the money, not that money is not important because that's the way you – you know, you provide for your family. But I think for most of those players, it was really never about the money. It was about being the best player or the best, um, you know, athlete, pitcher, or whatever you want to be that you could be. And, you know, I mean, when I see Yogi Bear and, I, you know, I just remember, I mean, here's a guy that's got 10 World Series rings and, um, you know, I mean, he, he had one home run to left field and he had 358 of them you know, and you played in all those great Yankee teams that, uh, you know, that won five straight world championships, you know, you just realize that, I mean, it, it, you're in a real special group. And um, I, I just don't, I, I think you, you kind of realize it, but until you're actually in Cooperstown and, you know, which is an idyllic little, you know, town up on the, uh, what, Lake Oswego. It's the mouth mm-hmm. of the Susquehanna River. And um, there's, I mean cycle like the the Hall of Fame actually sits at the the end of the lake and it's like a little jewel and to be part of that collection is uh, pretty special
0: will we ever see four man rotations again I see no, you know no. I mean Never, you th- you threw, threw three hundred and five innings when you were twenty four now if a guy's that age and he throws two hundred innings they're they're concerned
1: well it's not that they couldn't do it it's just they don't need to and you know agents wouldn't do it. Um, you know, Jimmy Fry, when, 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 you know, Jimmy was our first base coach, he left, he went to Kansas City, then he managed the Cubs, um, then he did radio, he came back as a general manager. And when he was doing radio, I think it was up in Montreal, and, and, you know, the Expos, I was doing a Monday night game or a Sunday afternoon game, and Jimmy said, if I ever become general manager, I'm going to the four-man rotation. And, you know, a couple years later, you know, we... If you follow baseball, we all have all the answers. If we're doing radio or television, you know, we we know what's going on. We have all the answers up there in the booth. At least that's what I've been accused of. But Jimmy said, if I ever become, you know, get back in a position of uh, actually running an an organization, and he would become the the Cubs general manager, I'm going to a four-man rotation. And I'm still waiting. (laughs) Now, obviously, he's not the general manager. He's retired playing golf in Maryland and and Florida. But, you know, it's just I think it's something that, you know, I mean, is it easier to find four pitchers in five? Yes. Uh, You know, is pitching, feel, and touch? Yes. Um, But, you know, Tom House, there are certain physiologists that says your arm can't uh, uh, recover in four days. Well, ask Gibson, ask Kof, well, right. Koufax. you know, her the Mets pitched on a five-man rotation, but ask A. Lord Perry, you know, ask Ferguson Jenkins. I mean, you know, we all know it can happen. It's just, you know, again, if you pay more for less, and that's what they're doing, then you're going to get less. And, you know, I look at your
0: stats, and some of these years you're averaging about close to eight innings a start, and I'm thinking, nowadays, if you were pitching, you'd probably average about seven Top's, and then they'd bring in the, the specialist to finish up. Unless you had a, a perfect game or something. going
1: Well, don't get me wrong. I mean, if 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 I had, I mean, we had some pretty good closers. Tippy Martinez comes to mind. I mean, Ben Stoddard They would share the role. You know, and Tippy was, you know, if he did not pitch for five or six straight, or in five or six straight games, which Weaver would do every once in a while, um, I'd be very happy to to give the ball to Tippy or give it to Mariano or to give it to Stu Miller. It's just not the way the game was, and you know Earl Weaver used to have a very simple philosophy. Whether it was me or Cuellar or McNally or you know even Dobson, he said, "If I think you're better than the guy out there, why would I bring them in?" So I think right now the way the game's evolved, it's not that guys can't pitch more. I mean you know you have the you know you have the Clayton Kershaws of the world that you know are so good that and he does play in the National League. I mean I'm sure he'd figure it out if he played with the DH. But you know you can work your way through a National League lineup if you have his kind of talent and you're as smart as he is, and you know you have his ability, and um, you know you can you, you can pitch seven and eight, you know seven and third, seven and two thirds. But uh, you know the Orioles, I mean, one of their mantras for for 2015 is, you know, instead of getting maybe 17 outs, which is you know maybe a little bit less than six innings, let's get close to seven innings, and you know they have a good bullpen and. I think most teams, and if you if you looked at what went on with Kansas City, you know who swept the Orioles, uh, they beat them uh, four straight, but only outscoring them by six runs. It was really all about the back end of their bullpen. Um, you know they just have a terrific bullpen in Kansas City, very good defensive club, don't strike out a lot. The last two games were two to one, two to one. So you know I think the Orioles felt in 2014 kind of like what the Yankees felt like, or the uh, Dodgers felt like in. And 66, sometimes it's hard to score. And, you know, the back end of your bullpen nowadays, you know, the average fastball has gone up a mile per hour, so the average fastball is like 92.5. And then if you end up getting, uh, you know, into the back end of Kansas City, those guys, you know, Wade Davis was throwing 97, 98, you know. um, You know, Holland, you know, closer has a slider that looks like a splitter that goes straight down. Uh, You know, uh, what, Herrera throws close to 100 so the game is over. I mean, it's kind of like playing the Yankees in my era. If the Yankees had a lead, they'd bring in Gossage to pitch the seventh, eighth, and ninth. And uh, so, you know, that's the philosophy. And, uh, you know, again, it's not the pitchers can't pitch more. It's just not that they're not asked to do that.
2: So when's the Jackie comeback?
1: There is no jockey comeback. <laughs> but I do still have some, so I have a garage sale once a year. <laughs> We're otherwise. Well, I can, you know, I'm very <laughs> flexible when it comes to that. <laughs> All right. Hope
0: you enjoyed that interview. I'd like to thank our guest, Hall of Fame pitcher Jim Palmer of the Baltimore Orioles and our Hall of Fame executive producer Dave Olson. You're listening to Sports and Torts on TalkZone.com. Tune in again next time.